Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here uh, tonight. Of course, uh, let me begin uh, by saying thank you uh, to Pastor Thompson and Mrs. Thompson, of course, for their friendship and their faithfulness and, uh, and their hospitality. And congratulations to uh, Shore Foundation Baptist Church uh, for five years of, of uh, ministry. And we know it's been more than, than five years. Obviously, you spent a couple of years as, as a Verity satellite, uh, but five years since you've been uh, independent. And this church will always uh, hold a place uh, near and dear to my heart. And I know it's the same with my wife. Obviously, Pastor and Mrs. Thompson are, are very dear friends of ours. But uh, this church is special because it's the first church plant, the first uh, church we ever planted outside of our church in Sacramento. And we're just uh, thrilled at the success and how things have gone here. And I appreciate you being uh, here uh, tonight. And um, it's good to see uh, Evangelist Wynn uh, with his family. I'm glad you're here and uh, good to see you. It's good to see the Gessler family from Sacramento. They're here and uh, praise the Lord for that. The uh, young ladies did a good job with the, with the offertory. And uh, I appreciate you being here on a Friday night. I realize it's a Friday night, and it's the Friday night after the Red Hot Preaching Conference. I'm sorry that your pastor asked me to preach on the Friday after the Red Hot Preaching Conference. I'm sure many of you are tired of seeing me, and uh, rest assured, I'm tired of seeing you too. Uh, but we're here, so we might as well make the best of it, you know? And I'm kidding, of course. I, I love being here, and I appreciate you uh, being out here. I know coming out on a Friday night, it's been busy and uh, traveling and all those things, uh, but I, I appreciate you uh, coming out here. Uh, just real quickly, just, just this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I was thinking about that verse um, that Pastor Thompson uh, read there, Leviticus 19.25, And in the fifth year shall ye eat of the fruit thereof, that it may yield unto you the increase thereof. I am the Lord your God. Years ago when we started Verity Baptist Church, uh, my wife and I started Verity Baptist Church in our living room, almost 13 years ago, and of course we started in our, our living room, we started from scratch, just uh, very few uh, uh, families uh, to begin with, but my dad told me that it would take about five years before we really began to see the fruit of our ministry, and, and that was true, I mean it was, it, it was about five years before we really began to, to get some momentum going. And of course, that's not the case here. Uh, but when I read that verse, I always think of that. And in the fifth year shall ye eat of the fruit thereof. And I think that uh, these five years have really been laying a foundation for this church and, and the best is uh, yet to come. So congratulations to all of you and, and God bless you uh, for being here. Uh, we're there in Matthew chapter number 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. The Bible says, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want to preach tonight on the subject of the church, and this is actually the first time I've preached since the Red Hot Preaching Conference. Since I preached at the Red Hot Preaching Conference, uh, I have not stood behind a pulpit. I've had so many guest speakers uh, that this is, this is my first time, so maybe I'm a little rusty. We'll see how it goes. Pray for me. Um, but of course, we have this famous uh, text here where Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And uh, like I said, tonight I want to preach on the subject of the church, and specifically, I want to preach on 
the biblical illustrations uh, for a church. And we know that the church is important, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I won't take the time to go through a lot of these verses. We'll look at some of them tonight. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is the head of the church. The Bible teaches that Jesus uh, is the one who builds the church. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Savior of the church. And he, he, he loves the church. The church is important to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting to me is that in the Bible and throughout the Bible, and, and for many years, as I read and studied the Bible, I noticed that the Bible would have these different illustrations uh, for uh, the church. And if I could say it this way, and, and, and don't, I'm, 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 I'm kind of joking, so don't take it too literally, but it, it would kind of bother me uh, because I like things to be consistent. And it would kind of bother me that the Bible would use so many different illustrations for the church. And I would kind of think to myself, why, why doesn't God just pick one? Why doesn't God pick an illustration for the church and just stick with it? And I would read in one place and there'd be one picture or illustration for a church. Then I'd be in another book and there'd be another picture or another illustration for the church. And, and it kind of bothered me until one day I realized that each one of the illustrations, obviously we know that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. And when I realized that each one of these illustrations actually highlights a different relationship within the church, and the reason that we're given these different illustrations is because they highlight different aspects of the church, I began to appreciate these illustrations of the church. So I'd like to share these with you tonight. I'd like to give you four biblical illustrations for a church. If you're taking notes, maybe you can jot these down. And I'd like to uh, not only show you these illustrations, but give you the highlights and some applications that go along with it. You're there in the book of Matthew. You can lose your place there in Matthew. And go with me, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Of course, if you're in Matthew, you're going to go past Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 5. And if you would not mind, I'd like you to put a ribbon or a bookmark or your bulletin there in the book of Ephesians because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I'd like you to be able to, to get to it quickly. Ephesians chapter number 5. And I'd like you to notice verse number 23, and you'll see the first illustration that I'd like to show you uh, in the Bible regarding the church. Ephesians 5.23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And the first illustration I'd like you to notice here tonight is that the Bible illustrates a church as a bride. The Bible illustrates the church as a bride, meaning that there is a picture here between a husband and a wife. And that picture illustrates the, the, the church as well. We see here again in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Notice it, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. And as we begin tonight, I want you to notice that this first illustration of the church as a bride, this illustration uh, that is this picture that is used of a husband and wife picturing or illustrating the church, it highlights for us the relationship between Christ and his church. We see here that the illustration of the husband uh, and uh, being the head of the wife is a a picture of how Christ is 
the head of the church. Now, let's just run a couple of verses real quickly just to lay a foundation. Keep your place there in Ephesians, if you would, and go with me to the Gospel of John. In, uh, towards the beginning of the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 1. And let's talk about this illustration and how it highlights the church's relationship to Christ. And I know that you guys just had a King James Bible conference, of course, not too long ago. So uh, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but let me just talk about this quickly. Theologically speaking, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the living word. He is the word of God and he is the word of God in the flesh. John chapter one and verse one, if you would, the Bible says in John one, one. Now do me a favor. When you get to John, keep your place there as well. Put a ribbon or something there. Keep it in Ephesians and keep it in John. John chapter one and verse one, the Bible says in the beginning was the word. Notice in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. If you notice that term there, with God, that means that He was uh, separate from God. So the Word is with God, meaning that He's separate from God. But then it says, and the Word was God. You say, how? And the Word was there, meaning the same as God. How could the Word be with God and be, and, and, and he, he was with God and He was God? And of course, what we are seeing here is a verse that illustrates the the Trinity. And the Trinity, of course, is the belief that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we know that that second member of the Godhead is the Word. You don't have to turn here, but in 1 John 5, 7, the Bible says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead is the living word. You say, why do you refer to him as the living word? Well, notice there in John 1, if you skip down to verse 14, John 1, 14 says this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory, just in case you're not sure who it is, as of the only begotten of the Father, that sounds that that reminds us of the very famous verse later on in this book, John 3:16, his only begotten son, as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So we know that theologically speaking, when we're speaking doctrinally, we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the living word. And again, I'm not preaching on the subject of the King James Bible, but this is why we need a perfect Bible. Yeah. Why? Because Jesus is pure. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is without error. And because Jesus is the living word, then we should also have a written word that is uh, perfect and pure and without error. But Jesus is the living word. Keep your place there in John. Go back to Ephesians. While you turn there, let me just read to you another passage out of Revelation 19. You go back to Ephesians. I'll read to you out of Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is, of course, uh, uh, the famous passage uh, teaching us and telling us about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he came, he, the Bible says, Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he the judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And then in verse 13 the Bible says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So we know that Jesus, theologically speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word in the flesh. The Word was made flesh. He's the living Word of God. And and the reason I bring that up is to say this. Practically speaking, because 
the illustration of the church that we saw in Ephesians is the illustration of a husband and a wife. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Ephesians 5.23. But what is it that Paul is trying to teach us when he says that? Why is he telling us, even as Christ is the head of the church, uh, is the, uh, he says it's like the husband who is the head of the wife. Notice Ephesians 5.24. Here's the application. Therefore, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. See, the application is this, that husbands are to be the leader in the home. They are to be the head of the home, and they are to be the head of the wife. What does that mean? That the wife is to submit herself under the authority of her husband. By the way, I'm not preaching on this, but let me just say this. When you've got the wife making decisions in the home, you're wrong. When you've got the wife deciding you know, where you're going to live and where you're going to go and what you're going to do, you are not submitting yourself to the biblical method of marriage because the Bible teaches that the husband is the head of the wife. And don't mess with that because that's actually an illustration and a picture of how Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. And in the same way that the wife is to submit herself under the authority of her husband, the church is subject unto Christ. Now you say, but how does that work practically though? Because we can say that Jesus is the head of the church and he is the head of the church. The, the pastor is not the head of the church. Pastor Thompson, God bless him, is a great pastor, but he's not the head of the church. The head of a Bible-believing church is Christ. And you say, well, I understand that theologically, but how do, we, how do we translate that practically? How does that actually look? Because last time I checked, the Lord Jesus Christ never appeared and told us to do anything. Physically, verbally, if He did, uh, you've got to get something checked out. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not speaking to us today. He's not appearing to us, to, to us today. Paul said that He was the last to see Him. So how does this work on a practical level? And here's what I want you to understand. Theologically, the Lord Jesus Christ is the living Word. Practically, the Lord Jesus Christ leads the church through the written word. The living word, who is the head of the church, theologically speaking, practically leads the church through the written word. It is the Bible that is the authority in all matters of faith and practice. It is the Bible. Someone said it this way. When the Bible is the boss, you're a Baptist. And what we need to understand in the first application that we get from this illustration of the church as a bride is this, that we are to submit ourselves to our head as the church, and the head of the church is the Word. Theologically speaking, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, that's this King James Bible. And what we should always ask ourselves when it comes to church is, what does the Bible say? Psalm 119 105, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the Bible teaches that the Bible is to be a a, a source which guides us, which directs us. It is a lamp unto my feet. It lights my way. It is a light unto my path. And listen to me, you're sitting tonight in a Bible-believing church. I realize that every church in America says they believe the Bible. Every church in America gives lip service to the Bible. But I'm here to tell you that you're actually sitting in a church that actually teaches and believes the Bible. Amen. 
and not just John 3.16, but <laughs> Leviticus as well. And Judges 19, and Genesis 19, yep. and Romans chapter 1, all of it. See, we actually, these Bibles are not up here just as decorations. Right. I mean, they are up here as decorations. <laughs> but they're not just up here as decorations. They are the leader of this church. And you know, your pastor and every Bible-believing pastor is to submit themselves under the authority of the Word of God. Yep. Now, here, here's how it works. You don't get to tell your pastor what to preach. He can preach whatever he wants, as long as it's in this Bible. Amen. Now, if, if, it's, if it's in the Bible, then he can preach it. You say, what if I don't like it? If it's in the Bible, he can preach it. You say, what if it causes protest? If it's in the Bible, he can preach it. What if it causes persecution? If it's in the Bible, he can preach it. You can't tell him what to preach, but he can't just preach whatever he wants either. He has to be able to submit himself under the authority of the Word of God. Go to Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 4. You're there in Ephesians. If you just go backwards, you have the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. There's a term that we use at our, at our church uh, back home in Sacramento. I often say this to our church people. And it is this, that we ought to build our lives on the Bible. We should build our lives on the Bible. And what we should always ask, and we should always ask this question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 30, the Bible says this, Nevertheless, here's what Paul said, Galatians 4.30, Nevertheless, and I love this little question, he says, What saith the Scriptures? That's the King James Bible way of saying, What does the Bible say? Go to Romans chapter 4. You're there in Galatians. If you just go past 2 Corinthians, past 1 Corinthians, into Romans. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. I just want you to notice this little, this little question that is asked. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? You know, the question that we should always ask ourselves as Bible-believing Christians is this. What does the Bible say? If you're not sure what you're supposed to do, if you're not sure what direction you're supposed to take, if you're not sure what it is that you have to do in your life, you should ask this question, for what saith the Scripture? For what saith the Word of God? What does the Bible say? By the way, let me say this. If your pastor ever stands up and preaches something that offends you, you got to ask the question, what does the Bible say? I didn't like what he said, but, but, but what does the Bible say? Well, is he preaching the Bible? Well, yeah, the Bible says it, but I didn't like, well, look, look, remember the rules. He can preach whatever he wants as long as it's in this book. Well, I don't like that he said it, but what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says it. Well, I don't like how he said it, but, but what does the Bible say? In the Bible, he can say it. Now, you may not like how he said it. You may not like the words he used to say it. You may not like how it's presented. But we should always ask this question, why? Because the Bible illustrates the church as ears. I want you to notice that this term, overseer, the, the King James translators uh, chose to use the word overseers, and they correctly chose to use the word overseers. They were moved by the Holy Spirit, uh, and, 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 they, and they, 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 they got this word right here. But I want you to notice, in other places, the same Greek word is translated elders or bishops. And, and the reason for that is because an elder or a bishop, the word is synonymous with this term overseer. A bishop is one who oversees, is one who 
manages the affairs of. And here Paul is speaking to these bishops, and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost made you overseers. He says, To feed the church of God. So you notice that he's talking about the flock, and then he calls it the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And what we see here is the second biblical illustration of a church, and it is uh, the illustration of a flock. The Bible illustrates a church as a flock. And what this illustration does, it highlights, because remember, the first illustration was the church as a bride, and that highlights the church's relationship to Christ. The second illustration we see is the Bible using the illustration of a church as a flock. And this highlights the church's relationship to its pastor. Because notice he's talking to pastors. He's talking to elders. He says, take heed unto yourself. And then he refers to them as overseers, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, who he just called a flock. So we see that this illustration of a flock highlights the church's relationship to its pastor. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. If you start at the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, you go backwards. You have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, and then you have the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, towards the end of the New Testament, we see that the second illustration, the Bible illustrates the church as a flock, And this highlights the church's relationship to its pastor. And there's a couple of things I want you to notice regarding this illustration. And the first is this, that the pastor, and and let me just say this, when I refer to the pastor, I'm, I'm referring to the pastor and his wife. Because obviously when you're married, you're one flesh. And this is a team effort. And people sometimes, they try to downplay the pastor's wife but number one, let's just, you know, theologically, she's in, she, she's in the uh, qualifications for a reason. Yeah. Let me let you in on a little secret. You can't have a pastor without a pastor's wife. So treat your pastor's wife well. And, but just practically speaking, any growing church knows that the pastor's wife is just a way that the church gets a free employee. It's just like an employee that doesn't get paid. So we should so so understand that you know when we're talking about the pastor, we're talking about the pastor and his wife, and of course the pastor's family. And, and I want you to understand that the pastor is to care. This uh, illustration of the church as a flock is this: that the pastor is to care for the congregation. Are you there in Hebrews thirteen? Look at verse seventeen. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. This is, of course, the writer of Hebrews here is writing to a church and telling them, this is talking about spiritual authority. Obey them that have the rule over you is a reference to your pastor. Now, obviously, the pastor is not to lord over God's heritage. And we understand that uh, authority has limits and the limits are within the ministry. But listen to me. Your pastor is to rule within the church. He is the overseer within the church. You say, what is my role as a congregant, as a church member? Your role is to obey them that have the rule over you, notice it, and submit yourselves. You say, why should I submit myself to my pastor? Here's why. For they watch for your souls. 
The pastor is to care for the congregation. His job is to watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Now, oftentimes when I preach this or when someone preaches this or a pastor preaches this, people get this idea like, oh, you're just, this is real self-serving. You know, you're, you're preaching about pastoral authority and you're a pastor and you're just trying to get more power and you're trying to get more influence and you're just trying to get more this and get more that. Let me tell you something. None of us are trying to get more people to call us. <laughs> None of us are trying. Look, we're not trying to get, you, you, you say, but, but can I call my pastor? Of course you can. And you should. But you know why? Because he's watching for your soul. And people go, oh, you're just trying to, you're just trying to make him some sort of a king. You're trying to give him all this authority. No, look, look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Notice the last part of verse 17. Why should we do this? Why should we submit ourselves to them that have the rule over us? Why should we submit ourselves to our God-given spiritual authority? Why? Notice the last part of verse 17. For that is unprofitable for you. They watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy. Look, the reason that you want to submit yourself to your pastor, that he might be able to watch for your soul, that he might do it with joy and not with grief. You say, why? Because that is unprofitable. When you don't do that, it is unprofitable for you. Do you understand what I just said? Let me let you know a little secret. When the pastor gives you marital advice and you don't take that advice, he still has a good marriage. Do you understand that? People are like, oh, they come to the pastor or maybe a lady comes to the pastor's wife. They're like, I'm having problems with my marriage. I'm having problems with this. I'm having problems with that. And we're just like, well, what does the Bible say? <laughs> well, the Bible says X, Y, and Z. The Bible says you need to do this. The Bible says you need to stop doing that. The Bible says, and then people are like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. And look, and they act like it's going to hurt us. Hey, it's profitable for you. You don't have to listen to my marriage advice. I still get to go home to an amazing wife. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to the pastoral advice on child rearing. You think you're hurting it? He already raised his kids. His kids are raised. They got all the spankings they needed. It's unprofitable for you to not listen. You know who it helps for you when you listen to your pastor and your pastor's wife? It helps you. It helps your Christian life. It helps your marriage. It helps your child rearing. And these are the things that I often see when it comes to church members, when it comes to pastoral authority and advice and counsel. And let me just, just, let me just help you out with this because it's unprofitable for you. It's hurting you. God gave you a pastor. God gave you a pastor's wife. It's this, it's this incredible role that God has given you. It's, it's really amazing to me. I often think to myself, where else in the world are you going to find the, the, the role of a pastor? I mean, our job is to be a marriage counselor, a, a, a child therapist, a financial advisor, a general contractor. I mean, like, you know, like, we, we just have to... We, uh, you know, the guy that cleans up the mess afterwards. You know, it, it, all these roles that you, 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 that are wrapped up in these two individuals, the pastor and his wife. 
You say, well, well, what? why did God give me a pastor? He gave you a pastor to help you. So th- these are the two extremes that I often see with people. And let me tell you not to do them. Number one, don't avoid him. It's funny to me how people, when they, because they, they know what the pastor is going to say. He's going to say, well, what does the Bible say? Amen. And they don't want to hear that. So they go around and they want to get advice from everyone else except the pastor. They want to get advice from everyone else except the pastor's wife. It's always amazing to me. It's always this, just, this I'm just like, well, I mean, you, li- you literally in this church, Sure Foundation Baptist, you literally have a pastor here who has raised his children are grown. They're out of the house. Adult children, all still in church, all serving in church. All soul winning. You think if you had any questions about child rearing, you'd be like, Miss Sherry. But you know what I found stupid church members, no offense, <laughs> like to do? It's like they, they have all these questions. You know, my wife and I, in June of next year, my wife and I will be married for 20 years. Can you believe that? I, you, I don't know why you seem so shocked. <laughs> it's because we're so young. 20 years. And we got 20-year-olds who've been married for three weeks getting advice from the other guys who've been married for three weeks. <laughs> or getting advice from... And I'm like, why are you getting advice from the guy that's been divorced four times? Why are you getting advice? They're, 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 their marriage sucks too! God gave you a pastor! God gave you a pastor's wife! Don't avoid them. People want to run around and get advice from everyone else. When I get advice from Facebook. And what they're doing is they're trying to find someone that's going to agree with what they already want to do. But that is unprofitable for you. You know what you need is you need somebody in your life. And listen to me. If you don't have this in your life, you're in a bad state. And you can even come to a church like this church and still not have it. You need somebody in your life like Nathan who went to David. Someone that can get in your face and put their finger in your face and say, Thou art the man. And you know that they love you. And you know that they care for you. And you know that they're not trying to hurt you. And you know that they're trying to help you. But you need somebody who can tell you you're wrong. Don't avoid him. Don't avoid his wife. It's always funny. People, people report, you know, because we, you know, we're, I'm the past person who's also having marriage problems. They're asking this person who's not even married. They're asking this person who's been married three times. And I think, I wonder why they don't just ask my wife. I wonder why you don't just ask us. Don't avoid them. But here, here's, the other, here's the other thing. The, the two extremes. Don't avoid them. Here's the other one. Don't inform him. Because, of course, I preach sermons like these, right? So then people will set up meetings. They'll come into my office. And then they'll proceed to inform me about a decision they're making. And they'll, they'll go to his presentation. They'll give me their little spiel. And at the end, I think to myself, was there a question there? I'm sorry, were you asking? I think I missed that. Were you asking a question? And here's what people do. They don't want to avoid him, so they inform him. That way, they can go around the church saying, well, I already talked to pastor about it. Let me tell you something. Just because you talked to pastor about it, doesn't mean you asked pastor about it. And oftentimes people, well, I, well, I talked to pastor about it, and he knows. Yeah, he knows you're an idiot. That's what he knows. 
And people get this idea. They want to inform the pastor. Look, don't, don't get to the place in your life where you're just informing him. Tell him what you're doing without asking his thoughts, asking his opinions, after you've already made the decision. What's the point? Something I want to tell people, like, why are you in my office? You already took the job. You already bought the house. You already hired the mover. Why are you in my office? I'm sorry, was there a question there? You say, you just want people to have to, look, it's unprofitable for you. I always think it's funny, people end up moving to bad churches or whatever. And, and, they, and I think to myself, like, I still get to go to an awesome church. Yeah. It's unprofitable for you. Don't avoid him. Don't inform him. And look, this, this should tell you something about yourself. If you find yourself avoiding him or his wife, or if you find yourself informing him or his wife, and you're never utilizing the tool that God has given you to say, hey, Pastor, I'm coming to you before I make a decision. I would like to get your advice, and I'd like to know what the Bible says. Will you pray about this with me? Hey, that's not profitable for us. That's profitable for you. So the pastor is to care for his congregation. But let me say this. You're there in Hebrews 13, 17. Not only should the pastor care for the congregation, but I'd like you to notice Hebrews 13, 7. We saw Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. The pastor cares for the congregation. But in Hebrews 13, 7, we see something different. It says, remember them, which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. They're the ones that keep saying, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says, well, here's what the Bible says, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. You know, the Bible says that you should remember them. So not only Hebrews 13, 17, does the pastor care for the congregation, but Hebrews 13, 7, the congregation should care for the pastor. You should remember them. You should remember him. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you go backwards from Hebrews, you got Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. You say, I don't know, Pastor Jimenez, you're, you got four of these. It's almost been 40 minutes. You're on point number two. Listen, I'm, I'm going to preach as long as these guys preach at the Red Hot Preaching Conference. That's how long I'm. I'm going to go to each one of their churches and preach that long. Because <clears throat> you reap what you sow. 1 Timothy 5.17 One thing I can tell you about the new IFB is nobody knows how to read a clock. <clears throat> Apparently. 1 Timothy 5.17 I'm smiling if you're listening on audio. 1 Timothy 5.17 <clears throat> Let the elders, notice it, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Notice, doesn't say be counted worthy of honor. Double honor. And then, and then it says this, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. It might as well just say, especially the new IFB ones. 
Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. You know, the congregation should care for the pastor. What does that mean? A couple things. Number one, show him respect. 1 Timothy 5, look at verse 1. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat. The word entreat means to ask. Notice, you're not informing him, you're asking him. You're not avoiding him, you're asking him. And here it says, if you have a disagreement with the pastor, it teaches us about how your attitude should be. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. Now I don't know about you, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. But I can tell you this, I grew up in a Baptist home, I've been a Baptist my whole life, I've not been saved my whole life, but I've been a Baptist my whole life. Baptist born, Baptist bred, and when I die I'll be Baptist dead. All I've ever been is a Baptist. All I've ever been is an independent fundamental Baptist. All I've ever been is a soul winning Baptist. All I've ever been is a three to thrive Baptist. Sunday morning, Sunday night, that's all I've ever been. So I don't know about you, but I can tell you, I grew up in a Christian home that was independent, Federal Baptist, and Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winning, serving in church, with parents that, God bless them, they, they, they raised us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And let me tell you something, in my home, you didn't mouth off to my dad. I didn't walk up to him and give him any sort of attitude or any sort of, no. Look, if I was correcting him, which I don't think ever happened, you better believe it was done carefully. This is what the Bible says when it says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. Show him the same respect, the same honor that you would your father. Look, here's what the Bible's teaching is that you should go out of your way to show respect to your pastor. And again, I would add to that and your pastor's wife. I was preaching at... <clears throat> Stronghold Baptist Church earlier this year. They're having a camp out there in Georgia. <clears throat> and while I was sitting there before I got up to preach, uh, Pastor Burson was doing hour-long announcements like your pastor does. <laughs> <laughs> they were doing Bible drills and these things. And uh, he, he, he said a verse. He said, go. And a man in the congregation stood up and he quoted the verse. He quoted the verse and he quoted it correctly. I know this because the particular verse that he quoted, I have memorized. And he was not too far from me and I heard him say it. I heard him say it clearly. Correct. He said it correctly. Pastor Burzins, who was at the pulpit and further away, I think must have misheard him. And, and, and he said to this man, grown man, he said, I think you got that wrong. And, and this man, I was so impressed by this because maybe you, maybe you have to have been there, but, but he, he, he responded in a certain way and, and there was no attitude. He was not being sarcastic. You can tell it was very genuine. Pastor Burson said, I think you quoted that wrong. And he said, then I quoted it wrong. And he sat down. And I thought to myself, that's a man that respects his pastor. Some of you wimps would have been like, No, I said it right. Can't God give me my candy? I want my candy. No, I did say it right. You know, you know the, the Bible says that we should give the pastor double honor. You say, but he misheard him. He said, I don't 
if, if pastor says I said it wrong, then I said it wrong. I don't think you should preach this way. I, is this not what the Bible teaches, that you should remember them, which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow? Does the Bible not say that they're worthy of double honor? Does the Bible not say that maybe if there's some issue in which uh, you should just give them the benefit of the doubt and not give them attitude and just love them? I'm sure this man thought to himself, here's a man of God who has invested in my life, preaches the word of God to me. If he doesn't want to give me a little uh, uh, a squirt gun, that's okay. <laughs> Pastor Burson said, I think you got it wrong. He said, then I got it wrong. He said, no. I respect that. You got to show your pastor respect. You got to show your pastor's wife respect. Well, again, I realize that in our society, in our actual society we live in, people don't like to hear these types of things. But I think just, just for their position's sake, Paul said, I magnify mine office. And look, I, I think that there are certain ways that you should and should not speak to a pastor and a pastor's wife simply for their respect of their position. Simply because they were there when this thing started because they got this thing started. You got to show them respect. But let me say this. Not only should you show them respect, you got to show them appreciation. 1 Thessalonians 5, if you would. If you go backwards from 1 Timothy, you've got 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians. Here's all I'm saying is, be careful how you speak to pastors and their wives. And, and, and again, people don't like this type of preaching. Hey, David said that I would not, he said, he said I'm not going to, Touch the Lord's anointed. And, and Saul was not a good guy. And I know people like to preach, well, you're trying to make pastors. You know, it's, fu- it's funny because the Old Testament anointing is equivalent to the New Testament ordination. Yeah. So people are like, you're just trying to equate. No, the Bible equates the two. Yep. The Bible equates the Old Testament anointing with the New Testament ordination so if you don't know that, maybe you should keep your mouth shut yeah, good. and ask yourself, what does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. You should show them respect and you should show them appreciation. Look, pastors are going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. But you should show them respect and show them appreciation. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. First Thessalonians 5, 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. You know that this ministry thing, it's work. It's labor. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you. That's the overseer, the spiritual authority, and are over you in every area of life. No, in the Lord. And admonish you. The word admonish means they advise, they counsel, you don't avoid them, you don't inform them, you entreat them, you ask them, and they admonish you. Notice verse 13. To esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. You should show them appreciation. By the way, let me say this. You should go out of your way to show your pastor appreciation. You should go out of your way to show your pastor's wife appreciation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't appreciate other pastors and other ministries that have been a blessing to you, but I always think it's interesting when somebody wants to go out of their way to show me appreciation 
and, and not their pastor. That's always a red flag for me. Because the Bible says, esteem them very highly for their work's sake. It says, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. And look, if Verity Baptist Church has been a blessing to you, and God bless you for that, and, and, and I hope it has been, but I'm not laboring among you. He is. She is. And again, I'm not saying don't appreciate other pastors, but there's something wrong when people go out of their way to appreciate other ministries and other pastors and other pastor's wives, and then they, they want to just ignore their own pastor and their own pastor's wife. That just shows that there's something wrong in your heart. To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And look, let me just help you with something, okay? Because no pastor preaches this, right? Nobody ever wants to preach this, so I'll just preach this to you because I'm leaving tomorrow. So <laughs> it works out great. And look, and, and, don't, and don't get this idea like, oh, you're just preaching that because Pastor Thompson asked you to preach. He didn't ask me to preach this. I'm preaching this because I'm going to email it to my whole church, okay? <laughs> but you know what a good leader does? A good leader lowers himself. I have a book in my office. It's titled, Leaders Eat Last. That's what a good leader does. Because part of being a good leader is, is, is practicing Humility and being a humble person. You know what good leaders do is they are constantly lowering themselves, esteeming others better than themselves. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He lowered himself, even unto the death of the cross. So a good leader always lowers himself. But here's what I see happens oftentimes, is that a good leader, trying to be a good leader, will lower themselves, and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm just like you. I'm just a, a normal person just like you. And we are. And it's right. And it's good. But then, simple followers will say, oh, okay. Yeah, you're just like us. See, a good leader lowers himself. But you know what a good follower does? He lifts up his leader. You say, give me a verse. Okay, First Thessalonians 5.13. To esteem them very Highly in love for their work's sake. So you know what? When he lowers himself, you know what a good follower does? says, no, 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 I'm going to give you double honor. Let the leader lower himself, but you, as the follower, don't you lower him. Don't you say, oh, Pastor Tom, he, Pastor Thompson, he's just Brother Aaron. No, he's not Brother Aaron. He's Pastor Thompson. It's, it's Mrs. Thompson. You need to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, when they humble themselves and they lower themselves, yeah, you know what? Leaders eat last and maybe we, we don't put ourselves in, 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 in front of the line. But you know, some followers should just go get them food. Did you hear what I said? You're just saying this because you're hungry. <laughs> Look, I, I'm, just, I'm just telling, I don't, I don't know about you, I'm just telling you, if, if I was not a pastor, I would never let my pastor stand in line at a potluck. Now, you know what a pastor should never do? He should never be like, I'm the pastor, me first. 
The pastor shouldn't go, shouldn't put himself first. But you know what I would do? I'd get him a plate. You say, ah, I don't know about that. Well, look, I, I'm just trying to help you with something. You should love him and respect him. He's not the same as you. He doesn't carry the same burden you carry. She doesn't carry the same burden you ladies carry. Their, their burden is harder. Their burden is, and it can't be explained, and you'll never understand it until you're in the ministry, and once you're, you know, every guy I ordain, uh, once they've been in the ministry for two years, they're like, now I get what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm starting to ordain people just to punish them. I'm ordaining you just so you can learn a lesson. They're not, they're not just like you. They're not. You say, I don't think you should be. Look, I, I'm, just, I'm just letting you know. If, if your wife quits on God and leaves the church, you know what happens? We have church on Sunday. If his wife quits on God and leaves the church, you know what happens? No church on Sunday. So don't tell me they're the same. They're not. Now, a good leader lowers himself. A good leader humbles himself. A good leader doesn't act like they're uh, better than anyone else. They lower themselves. But you know what good followers do? They give him double honor. They esteem him very highly and love for their work's sake. They don't sit there and go, okay, well, I guess he's just like us. No, he's not just like you. And thank God for that. Because if he was just like you, there'd be no Sure Foundation Baptist Church. There'd be no Verity Baptist Church. There'd be no Faithful Word Baptist Church. There'd be no, none of these churches. So the pastor cares for the congregation. Don't avoid him. Don't inform him. And the congregation should care for the pastor. Show him respect and show him appreciation. Let him lower himself and then you lift him up. Very highly in love for his work's sake. Let me give you the third one. Hey, look, at this point at the Red Hot Preaching Conference, he had only been on point one. <laughs> so I'm doing all right. <laughs> First Corinthians 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. If you kept your place in John, you have John, Acts, Romans, First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 12. Let me give you the third illustration. Number one, I said the Bible illustrates the church as a bride. This highlights the church's relationship to Christ. Number two, the Bible illustrates the church as a flock. This highlights the church's relationship to its pastor. Number three, the Bible illustrates a church as a body. This highlights the church's relationship to its individual church members. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, notice what the Bible says, For as the body is one and hath many members. The word members there is a reference to body parts. It's one body made up of many members. And all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Look at verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. By the way, it is God that sets members, every one of them, in the body. And if you are part of this church, you have been brought here by God. The Bible says that God set you here. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. For our comely parts, verse 24... 
For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered. That word tempered means to mix, an amalgamation. It's brought them together, tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacketh. The Bible illustrates the church as a body. This highlights the church's relationship to its individual church members. And you know, when it comes to being a, a member of the body, you need to understand a few things. Number one, there are many different types of members that come together by God. And every member is important. Every member has a role to play. You ought not despise each other. You ought to love each other. Look, are there people in churches that may maybe rub you the wrong way or they're whatever, they're annoying, they're this, they're that. But you ought to realize if, if they're here, God brought them here. God set the members, every one of them, in the body. And when it comes to being a, a member of this body, look, we, we've got to learn to become team players. When, when it comes to this idea, I, I want to give you a couple of words to kind of illustrate this for you. Go to Philippians, if you would, Philippians chapter 1. You got 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. And here's the first word. The first word is cohesiveness. Cohesiveness. Cohesiveness, let me just define it for you, is the quality of being structured or organized in a unified way, in a unified way, which with close or strong internal connections between people, ideas, or other elements. It is the quality of being structured or organized in a unified way with close or strong internal connections between people, ideas, or other elements. This is cohesiveness. This is what a church needs. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, Notice these words, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's cohesiveness. We need cohesiveness. Look, if this church is going to continue to grow and continue to do what God has called you to do, you're going to have to become a cohesive unit. Uh, you say, how cohesive? As cohesive as your body is. As tempered as your body is. As working together. As your body works together. Because your nose doesn't work separate of the rest of the body. Your hands don't work separate of the rest of the body. Your feet don't get to say, I don't like the hands. That's what Paul said, right? I'd like to read to you an article. I think it kind of illustrates this. It's interesting. The article is called The Redeem Team. It says, when you look at the roster of the 2008 United States men's Olympic basketball team, and you see the list of iconic names, from LeBron James to Kobe Bryant to Dwayne Wade to Dwight Howard to Jason Kidd to Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony. I have no idea who those people are, but some of you do. You think, of course they won the gold medal. Just look at the list of Hall of Fame talent. Victory in the 2008 games in Beijing was nothing but a lock for Team USA. This was four years before LeBron won, uh, would win his first title. This was a time when Kobe's image was tarnished. This was an era in which there were legitimate doubts about the Americans having the will, the drive, the commitment 
to compete on the world stage. After all, they just had their hats handed to them in the 2004 Olympics, eventually settling for the bronze medal. In the opening game against Puerto Rico, the final score was 92-71, making the first time the men's Olympic basketball team had lost with NBA players. The problem, in a nutshell, players around the world had learned to play basketball from a team-first concept, while too many Americans were individual stars. World-renowned Duke coach Mike Shujewski combined great respect for star talent and a full-on commitment to playing a team game. He told the 2008 United States men's Olympic basketball team, think less of yourself. We're only going to win if we win together. Carmelo Anthony sums it up best. We came together for a cause. My jersey didn't have Denver Nuggets on there. LeBron's didn't have Cleveland. Kobe's didn't have the Lakers. We had USA. That's gold. And you know, if, if a team can come together, if, if a team can come, can leave their egos at the door and come together for a corruptible crown, how much more should we for an incorruptible? How much more should we put aside our differences? How much more should we put aside our, 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 our little annoyances? How, how much more should we be willing to, to give forgiveness and receive forgiveness and, and, and decide to be a cohesive group? Because the Bible illustrates the body, the church as a body. And this highlights the church's relationship to its individual church members. And if you and I, uh, when we come together in a congregation, if we cannot work as well as an individual body, one body made up of many members, if we cannot work that way, then we will fail. We need cohesiveness. You say, why do we need cohesiveness? Here's why, because there's a second word I want to highlight for you when it comes to this idea of, of being a team player. And the second word, well, the first word is cohesiveness. The second word is synergy. Let me give you the definition for synergy. The definition for synergy is this. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That if you take an organization, you take a team, you take a church, whatever group we're talking about, and you were to take the individual parts and see what those parts could produce on their own. So we take one part, a second part, a third part, a fourth part, we see what those can do on their own. And then we added those up. We summed them up. We got the sum of what every part could do on its own it would be less than what those same parts could do together. That's synergy. You say, I still don't understand. Okay, let me give you an example. Synergy, let me read this for you. Synergy can practically be illustrated through two horses pulling weights. A draft horse on its own can pull up to 8,000 pounds. However, when two draft horses work together, they can move up to 24,000 pounds. This is even more amplified when trained together as they can pull 32,000 pounds. Logically, this does not make any sense. 
We were all taught at an early age that one plus one equals two. The power of synergy lies in the fact that multiplication, not addition, takes place when working as a team. A horse on its own can pull 8,000 pounds. If we have two horses working at the same time, but separately, 8,000 pounds, 8,000 pounds, gives us a total of 16,000 pounds. When we put them together, they can pull 24,000 pounds. That's synergy. That's why Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. And then it says, you know what's better than two? Three. Yep. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Why? Because of synergy. Let me tell you something. If we were to take Sure Foundation Baptist Church and we were to take every individual soul winner that shows up on a regular basis here at this church and we were to separate you across the country and you continue to go soul winning, which you would not do. You wouldn't do because you only go except they be sent. But let's just pretend for a minute you would. If we were to take every soul winner of Shirt Foundation Baptist Church, separate them, and send them out, figure out how many hours they put in, figure out how many souls they got saved, and we summed it all up, it would be less than what you can do together. Why? Because the Bible illustrates the church as a body. And we're better together. We need cohesion. We need cohesiveness. We need to come together. Why? Because of synergy. Because we can accomplish more together than we can apart. Because we can do more together than we can apart. This is the power of coming together as a body. And this is why the Bible illustrates a church as a body. Let me give you the last one. Go, to, go back to Ephesians if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. I said, number one, the Bible illustrates the church as a bride. This highlights the church's relationship to Christ. Number two, the Bible illustrates the church as a flock. This highlights the church's relationship to its pastor. And by the way, let me just say this. I, I, I know that there are many of you who have been very kind to me and my wife over the years, and, and God bless you, and, 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 and I, I know that you love your pastor and, and your pastor's wife, and I thank you for that. Let me re- reiterate that there's nothing wrong with showing appreciation for other pastors and other pastor's wives as long as you're showing appreciation for your pastor and your pastor's wife as well. Number three, the Bible illustrates the church as a body. This highlights the church's relationship to its individual church members. And then lastly tonight, the Bible illustrates a church as a building. This highlights the church's relationship to the Great Commission. I want you to, I gave you these two words when it came to the body, cohesiveness and synergy. I'm going to give you another word, and it is this, momentum. The word momentum is defined as strength or force gained by motion or by a series of events. I want to explain to you why you need momentum. In Ephesians 2.21, the Bible says this, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. The Bible calls the church, it illustrates the church as a building. I want you to notice, it illustrates the church as a building that is building, as a building that is being built, in whom all the building fitly framed together. Notice, when the building is fitly framed together, when the building is experiencing cohesiveness and synergy, when it is building fitly framed together, 
then the natural result of that is this, that it groweth. In whom all the building filthily framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. The Bible illustrates the church as a building, and when it does, it emphasizes the building of a building. And again, we're not talking about a physical building. The building blocks of a church are the members. You're fitly framed together and you're growing. You are being builded together. Why do you need momentum? You need momentum because momentum is the only way that a church can grow. Please understand this about a church. And again, I'm preaching to you on the weekend of your five-year anniversary. So I want you to understand some of these things when it comes to church and church growth. And it is this, that a church is either growing or declining. You're either growing or declining. There is no such thing as a church that is maintaining. You're either growing or you're declining. Now sometimes people think, oh, my church or a church is just maintaining. And sometimes people will say to me like, oh, well, this church, you know, it's been the same size for the last 10 years. They're not growing. They're just maintaining. But that is actually incorrect because a church is either growing or, main, or, or, or declining. Now, when it appears that a church is simply maintaining, that does not mean that the church is not growing. All that means is that the church is not growing above its attrition rate. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, there's an attrition rate in organizations. And for churches, the attrition rate is this. People die. People get backslidden. And people move. Right? Every year, a church is going to experience decline because people get backslidden and quit. People move. And people die. So, if a church is maintaining... That means it's growing enough to stay, to keep up with its attrition rate. So when people say to me like, oh, uh, this church hasn't grown. It's been running 200 for the last five years. Well, it's been growing. It just hasn't grown above its attrition rate. If it's, if it's staying the same, it's growing enough to make up for the people that are dying, quitting, and moving. Because if it wasn't growing, it would be declining. And eventually it would be 15, 80-year-olds and they'd be selling their building to Verity Baptist Church. <laughs> That's how it works. Because the church is either growing or declining. And if it seems like they're maintaining, they're not actually maintaining. I mean, I'm not against people using that term, but what they're doing is they're just growing at the same rate that they're declining. They're growing at the rate of their attrition. You say, but that's not exciting. We want to grow. I understand that. So here's what you need to understand. To grow above your attrition rate, you need this word, momentum. Momentum. Strength or force gained by motion or by series of events. Let me explain momentum experience as a team, because that's what we are as a church. We're a team. The accumulation of many and often little things we do as a leader or as a team on a regular basis over and over again. Here a little, there a little. Let me just read to you an illustration for momentum. This is a train illustration. Momentum has always been explained to me like this. Picture a giant steam train stationary at the station. 
To get that big beast moving, you must use an extremely large amount of energy, a huge amount of coal and fire, and a team of hard-working humans to get that thing to move an inch. But as soon as it moves an inch, it gets easier and easier to move forward. As it gains speed, it becomes almost unstoppable. When it finally hits its maximum speed, there is no brick wall or barrier that can stop it. It's built up such a huge amount of momentum that it is almost unstoppable. And let me tell you something. When a church is five years old, you know what it's been doing for five years? It started at a halt. And there was a lot of energy, a lot of work, a lot of emphasis. A lot of sermons were preached. A lot of activities were held. A lot of training was done to try to get that thing rolling. And after a few months, it started to roll slowly. And after a year, it began to roll. And after two, it began to roll. And after three, it began to roll. You know why Leviticus says, In the fifth year ye shall eat the fruit thereof? Because sometimes it takes a while to get that momentum rolling. But once it's going... Once you become that well-oiled machine that's just been investing week in and week out, preaching week in and week out, soul winning week in and week out, this is why we need you. We need you to be faithful and cohesive. We need that synergy. We need that momentum. Why? Because it's the only way that a church can grow. And the Bible illustrates the church as a building and highlights the church's relationship to the Great Commission. If we're a building, if we're a building, then we should build then we should grow. Many of you know that by God's will, we'll be purchasing a 400-seat auditorium in the next six months. Sometimes people ask me, do you, are you, gonna, do you think you'll fill that 400-seat auditorium? Our church is running about 220 right now. And sometimes people ask me, do you think you'll fill the 400-seat auditorium? And I respond, let's try! <laughs> let's try! Let's try to build some momentum in that direction. Let's try to reach people with the gospel. Let's try to get them baptized. Let's try to disciple them and help them grow. Let's try to teach them to, to listen to the word of God, to ask the question, what does the Bible say? To ask advice of their pastor and their pastor's wife, to take the advice of the Bible, to help their marriage and help their child rearing, help their finances, get momentum going in the right direction. Because if we're a building, we might as well build. Look, I don't know about you, but if the Bible illustrates the church as a building, I don't want to be a sand castle. I want to be a skyscraper. The Bible illustrates the church as a building. This highlights the church's relationship to the Great Commission. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to have you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and then back to Matthew 16 and we'll be done. And I'll be two minutes... Less than your pastor preached. <laughs> I'm joking. I actually have no idea. He's probably going to look it up. And First Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Although I'm sure I could find a sermon <laughs> where he's preached a long time. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone. That's referring to Jesus. This allowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones, that's us, 
are built up a spiritual house. Notice whenever we're referenced as a building, the emphasis is always that we're building. Are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer in spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And we end where we started. Build your life on the Bible. Build your life on the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need momentum. The Bible says that we are lively stones that are built up a spiritual house. So we talked about why you need momentum. Let me quickly just explain to you how to get momentum. You say, well, you explain to us why we need momentum. We need momentum because we need to try to build that attrition rate because we're a building. We're illustrated as a building. And if we're going to be a building, we might as well build. If we're, look, if we're going to preach Sunday morning, we might as well try to preach as many people as possible. If we're going to go soul winning, let's try to get as many people safe as possible. If we're going to do this thing, let's try to do it big. Go big or go home. So we need momentum. How do you get momentum? Well, I've been explaining it to you for the last hour and 15 minutes. Have you not been listening? You say, how do you get momentum? Well, when a church is rallying around the Bible, the church is the bride. And when a church is rallying behind their pastor, the church is a flock. And when a church is rallying together, the church as a congregation, as a body, then that church will gain momentum and grow. The church is a building. See, the truth is this. Go, go, go back to Matthew 16. We'll finish up. Here's how momentum works. There are times in our ministry at Verity Baptist Church where we've experienced good momentum. I believe right now is one of those times. We, we're, we're having a lot of momentum going in the right direction. Sometimes we haven't had good momentum. Sometimes the momentum comes to a screeching halt. You say, what do you do as a leader when, you, when momentum dies? We Try to get it going again. Yeah. Start trying to get it rolling again. The thing about momentum is this, that it's not just all momentum. This is a spiritual work. You and I have to do our part. And the way momentum works is this. We do our part. We do everything we're supposed to do. And then God meets us on the other side. Yeah. We do everything we're supposed to do. And then God does what only God can do. And you experience momentum. Susan, how do you get momentum? Here's the recipe for momentum. A church needs to rally around the Bible. Right? Because You say, why? Because the Bible illustrates the church as a bride. This highlights the church's relationship to Christ as the head. Theologically, the living word is the head. But practically speaking, the living word, the, the written word is the head. So you rally around the Bible. You rally behind your pastor, the flock. You rally together, the body. And you gain momentum. You say, is that it? No. You do all that. You do all that. And then God steps in. And God does the rest. You say, why? Because Matthew 16, 18. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, 
And upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I promise you, you've already seen it. You've already experienced it. You're already growing. Sometimes it's good for us to remind ourselves that when we rally around the word of God, we rally behind the man of God, and we rally around the people of God, then Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this great church, Sure Foundation Baptist Church. I thank you for these dear people that will battle traffic, battle being busy and tired and would come out on a Friday night. Lord, I pray you'd bless them. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn from what we've heard tonight, to be challenged from what we've heard tonight. I pray, Lord, that this congregation would rally behind the Word of God, around the Word of God, and behind the man of God. And they would rally with the people of God. They would do what you've called them to do, and that they would experience momentum with the blessing and power of God. That you would continue to build this church, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We love you. We thank you for the five years of Sure Foundation Baptist Church, and we pray that you'd bless them with many more years to come. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.